The BASTEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents the U.S. Space Force and Hypersonics, the role for HBCUs, a professional development seminar. Featuring Johns Hopkins University Applied Research Laboratory representatives, Program Area Manager John Hicks, Program Manager Space Exploration Sector Patrick Hill, Electrical Systems Engineer Kenny Newsom, and Project Manager Roy Nicholson. Each day brings us a step closer to the reality of a United States Space Force becoming the sixth branch of the U.S. military. What steps are being taken to add a new branch to the military? What is the Space Force? What is its mission? How will it function and defend? What role can HBCUs play and how can they get in on the ground floor with new research and contract opportunities? What will be the acquisition environment? Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents the U.S. Space Force and Hypersonics, the role for HBCUs, featuring John Hicks, Patrick Hill, Kenny Newsom, and Roy Nicholson. And before I even do a briefing or anything like that, um, I want to ask a question in the audience, and I'm going to introduce myself, and I'll talk about the team and all the other things that we'll go through uh, this afternoon. How many folks are currently students at HBCUs? How many are faculty at HBCUs? How many are associated with HBCUs in one fashion or another? Alumni? Okay, where'd you go? Okay, very good. Alumni? Okay. I guess I should have asked that too as well. I know we see um, DOD here with, uh, from the Army, Space Force, I mean, uh, with the FA-40, you work with them or is this just? Okay. Okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and begin. And the reason why I asked that question is one who I wanna understand the audience. Last year we had some students that were in the audience that were from HBCUs and we addressed their questions as well. So and you'll understand why when I start talking about the background of some of the folks that are here in their bios and everything. Um, but to begin with, the format today will be one of pretty simple. We're going to have a lot of questions at the end. I'm going to have a briefing on the Space Force. I'm going to talk about hypersonics, but not go into a lot of depth, because this is more about what I believe, how do HBCUs get involved in DOD, whether it's NASA Security Space, or Civ space, because we've broken up our panel and we'll talk about our bios in terms of what we do and how that relates to both of those areas. So we're going to hold off on the briefing for a little bit. And we're going to uh, talk about our bios and a few other things to get started. My introductory comments here. Back in, on Monday, June 18th, 2018, our president made it known that his efforts to create a sixth branch of the U.S. military, which he called the United States Space Force, this has opened a wider debate about whether such a move is necessary to better manage military space activities across DOD. While the idea of a separate space-focused military branch is not new, this goes all the way back to Eisenhower and other, and other administrations, where they've talked about what do we do with space? And so that idea has been around. So Trump's surprise announcement caused a buzz in social media and news outlets. 
And today, as you know, we have what we call the United States Space Force. We're going to talk about that in this briefing as we get to it. But before we do that, and also before we talk about hypersonics, I want to talk about our bios and our panelists here. First of all, I'd like to introduce um, Mr. Patrick Hill. And Patrick um, was recently appointed a deputy project manager for civ space programs to the space exploration sector of the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. In this role, he is responsible for the successful execution of APL's multi-billion uh, billion portfolio of NASA programs. Prior to this role, he served as a project manager for NASA's Parker Solar Probe Mission, or PSP, where he successfully led his project team through the development, integration, testing, launch, and operation of the Parker Solar Probe Flight Observatory. Patrick joined APL after working in commercial space uh, satellite development, integration, and testing. He graduated Madden Cum Laude from Tuskegee University with a bachelor with a BS in aerospace engineering and holds a master's of science in aeronautical and astronautics from Stanford University and an MS in technical management from the Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Patrick, today. Our next panelist also went to an HBCU, Mr. Ken, Kenneth Newsom, we call him Kenny. And before I even go with that, all of us are from APL, we're all from Johns Hopkins. And I'll tell you why we did that this year versus inviting folks from uh, the Pentagon and other places. Ken is a, a member of the senior professional staff of the Johns Hopkins University uh, Applied Physics Laboratory, serving as an electrical systems engineer within the space exploratory exploration sector. Kenny earned a BS in electrical engineering from Morgan State University and MS in systems engineering from the University of Maryland, Baltimore uh, County. Kenny is a versatile electrical systems engineer with both technical depth and breadth across the space systems life cycle and across particularly challenging mission spaces. Kenny has served as a spacecraft electrical systems engineer and previously deputy for the Parker Solar Probe mission, a NASA Living with a Star program which launched in 2018. Kenny currently serves as the spacecraft electrical systems engineer for the Interstellar Mapping and Acceleration Probe IMAP mission and NASA uh, Solar Terrestrial Probe Probes program. In this role, Kenny is responsible for the development of the spacecraft electrical architecture, as well as overall spacecraft electrical systems technical oversight. And if you haven't heard anything about Parker Solar Probe, you ought to go on, uh, on and take a look at it. It's huge. Understanding our sun and our solar system is, is something that we haven't done before in this detailed, and Kenny's part of that. Next on our list is Roy Nicholson. And Rory works with me out in LA in Los Angeles where we have another group of folks out there working with the space and missile systems. And this morning, and actually through his bio, I didn't really know this, but when he was in the first grade, he read this book, Let's Go to the Moon. Roy knew at that time his engineering career, he wanted to go down that path because of that book. Now think about that, first grade. I don't think I was even that good at first grade. That career interest led him to obtain a BS in physics from the University of Mount Union, Ohio, and to continue his technical education across a number of technical areas. He is a staff member at JHU APL, Los Angeles, California, where I am at. He is a, a project manager and section supervisor 
as the project manager for government systems acquisitions. He is responsible for leading the technical support from the GA2APL's team. As a section supervisor, he provides both the administrative and career development guidance to the staff in his section. Across his career, he has worked on space systems development for Los Angeles aerospace companies for over 20 years. He is a strong advocate for uh, youth to seek STEM careers. He is an active participant in working with high school and high, and high school students for internships opportunities. And I want to thank you, too, for coming. And the reason why I asked all these gentlemen here from APL, and I've done this in multiple years, is because I, wanted, I was hoping to see students this year. And I wanted those students to see, yes, you can, versus seeing a bunch of guys from the Pentagon who I know to come in here and talk about space. I wanted them to talk about the students to see that you can go and have jobs at APL with Northrop Grumman and Boeing and all the others coming from an HBCU or an MSI and do well. You can do well, but you have to have it in here. You have to want to be and you have to have to want to do it. And this just doesn't miss mean a bunch of black guys or white guys or anything like that, but women too. Guess what? We have women engineers who are doing very well. So it goes across the entire spectrum. What do you want to do? How do you want to achieve it? And it starts, now we were talking about earlier today, it starts out early. It doesn't start in junior high. I think it starts in grade school. And it starts with the parents and it starts with school and, and getting them interested in that. Not everyone's going to play well in basketball. I didn't. Not everyone's going to play well in football. I didn't. But I was really good in math and science. And that's where it led me to, was this job. My history goes back to I graduated from the United States Air Force Academy back in 1978, before many of you weren't even, even born in the audience. Some of you were. You can go back to my age. Um, and from there, I went to Golden Gate University and then to pilot training. I was an F-15 pilot for 21 years. And then I uh, came out of the Air Force. And I went to um, actually National Nuclear Security Administration, working for Honeywell as a contractor, when working nuclear weapons and we're doing Air Force work. And after that, I joined um, APL, Johns Hopkins, 15 years ago. And I've worked all the way from the research uh, center to uh, special operations and now space. Uh, so I've had a variety of things in my career as well to help uh, talk about this today. So without further ado, I want to go ahead and get to this briefing. And one other thing, too, I want to talk about before I actually do that is hypersonics. How many folks know about hypersonics? Okay. Okay. It's hypersonics. Hypersonic vehicle is a vehicle that goes Mach 5 plus. That's five times the speed of sound. What's important about hypersonics? Well, hypersonics is important because it's a way to move a heavy weapon deployed that can travel at a high rate of speed evade radar in some cases, and be able to hit a target very quickly. So one of the things that I'm going to talk about today as we get through our, 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 our briefing is to talk about more in terms of hypersonics, in terms from an HBCU standpoint is, what can you do? What can you do in this area? All the way from materials development, propulsion development, and other things that are very important to support hypersonics and hypersonic weapons and technology going forward. For those that don't know, both the Russians as well as the um, Chinese have developed a lot of research in this area in hypersonics and have a lot of good capability in it. The Air, the, uh, um, the Air Force has also developed technology in this area as well. 
Now, I'm not going to get anything classified, so my team here, don't, you don't have to worry about me saying anything because I'm not a hypersonics guy, but I just know about hypersonics because some of them do transverse through space. Um, some of them fly at low altitudes, and it uh, all depends on how it's going to be deployed. And we'll talk about that more in depth once I hear some of the questions that come up from the audience. The other part, now I will start the briefing. So today I want to go ahead and unpack what I'm calling unpackage the new Space Force. I want to examine the legislation that established the U.S. Space Force, take a guided tour of the DOD organization, the uh, unified combatant command structure, and finally the day-to-day -day organization chart. And that's probably the most important thing for those who are interested in terms of what the Air Force is doing in terms of the establishment of the United States Space Force. I'm just going to go ahead and get all these on here. First, in FY 2020, the National Defense Authorization Act accomplished the following here. Probably the most important thing that it did was it redesignated the Air Force Space Command, which is out of Colorado Springs, as the United States Space Force. What's important about that? And I'll talk about that in more of the other charts. It's Kind of like the, if you know what the Marine Corps is, and years ago it was, it was part of the Navy. Well, the Space Force will be part of the Air Force, but it will be its own component, just like the Marine Corps. It will be, they will have a service uh, four-star that will be part of the Joint Chiefs as well. I envision that one day the Space Force will be its own area altogether. What I mean by that is separate and distinct from the Air Force altogether in the future. And the reason why I believe that is because anyone who ever watched Star Wars, I mean Star Trek, Star Wars, and all the other things that are on TV, well, if you ever take a look at the emblem that's for the new Space Force, if you guys have seen that, it looks almost like if you take a look at Star, uh, Star Trek, it looks very much like that. I'm not saying that they copied it, and I'm not going to say that at all, but it looks very, very much like it, like Beam Me Up Scotty and all the other things. I mean, I, was, uh, I can remember being in school watching that and taking a look at that and wondering, is that going to happen one day? And, and today we have communicators, which are our phones, and the little flip phones, and you dial it up. And the only thing we can't do is beam up right now. Maybe one day we will. This is probably the, in the whole slide deck. This is probably the most important slide here on the, in the deck. And what I wanted to show you here is what the Department of the Air Force and Secretary of the Air Force has. If you take the Air Force itself, and I was in the Air Force for 21 years, and the Air Force, that will be the aircraft side. What's important about that? The mission of the Air Force is to fly and fight. That was the sole mission of the Air Force. And at the time, before the U.S. Space Force was formed, under, uh, at that time, it was just um, aft space, if you would. There was always an issue of how do we get money to do the things that they wanted to do, because most of the money went to iron on the ramp. What do I mean by iron on the ramp? Iron on the ramp is aircraft. You know, you can justify how many aircraft and how many wings you need for the Air Force, but it's kind of hard to justify in some cases a satellite. Do I need a comm satellite? Do I need a, a satellite that does uh, um, ISR uh, or, or one that does um, an electric, electrical optical mission, an EO, what we call EO mission, or an ELINT mission? They keep going on and on. These are various missions that are in space that support either the intelligence or the Air Force itself. And uh, so my thoughts are, all those, those, those were supporting roles for the Air Force. They were not a warfighter role at the time. Space has changed over the years. And what we're seeing is that space 
in opinion, this is my opinion, not APL's opinion, but John Hicks's opinion, space is becoming a warfighting domain. And because of that, we need to have the focus on, this, on the assets, the focus on the people, and the focus on how do we move space across all the entities, whether it's the Army, whether it's the Air Force, and the Navy. Because quite frankly, the Air Force didn't do a good job, and again, in my opinion, on supporting the Army in space. The Air Force didn't do a great job at supporting the Navy. The Air Force was focused on the Air Force, and everything else was incidental. And by making this change, this fundamental change, you make the change where now the Space Force, which you see here, which will have its, um, its Office of the Chief of Space Operations, will be, and the Space Force will be under that, they will now have the job solely to support space and to understand that, that, that space is a warfighting domain now. And I think that was a re major reason behind that. Um, and I think that's a good change. Very much similar to the change when the Air Force broke away from the Army, uh, from the Army many, many 1949, when the Air Force was established. Same thing. There were folks that were fighting back then for uh, all the way from Carl Spots and all the other people that were fighting for it. They wanted an Air Force because there's a mission. And now there's a mission in space. How many people remember, uh, remember the word Sputnik? The Russians had their satellite that went up in 1959. And the, and the, basically, the United States said, what happened? How come they got into space first? But what can we do in space? And all of a sudden, we can't live without space. You can't talk on your phone without space. You can't travel on an aircraft without space. GPS uses space satellites. P&T. That's what space is all about. It's not just that, but many other things, communications. So the bottom line is we can't, as a nation, live without space. That's kind of where we're at today. I just wanted to provide the other, some more slides. Now, I'm not going to go over all those slides. Otherwise, we'll spend most of our slide today on, on, the, on the slide deck here. But I wanted to show you that because I think that's important, and that's part of this discussion here today, is hypersonics and the U.S. Space Force. And what is the role of the HBCUs? So I'm going to lead off with the first question here to my group and talk about that a little bit. The first question I have for this group, and I want you guys to engage. Okay, this is really more for you, not for us. I, I, I know what's going on here. But if you have a question, ask it, okay? This is the opportunity to do so. And I mean any question you want. The question I have for my panel here is how can HBCUs engage with both NASA and the United States Space Force for opportunities such as research grants and more. So I'm going to start out with Patrick. Um, I can speak for the NASA side. Um, as John mentioned, I support uh, NASA projects as the uh, Deputy Program Area Manager for Civil Space Program. So um, there's lots of direct ways that HBCUs can and, and, uh, get involved with NASA projects. Most of those are through grants. NASA has direct grants that you can apply for um, I'm on the advisory board for both uh, Tuskegee University and for the University of uh, D.C. And both of, both of those um, uh, programs have applied directly for NASA grants. They've recently been awarded multi-million dollar NASA grants. So that's the most direct way for HBCUs to, to engage with NASA is to go through the process of applying for, for, um, for grants. 
Uh, if you don't feel like you have the bandwidth within your university to apply by yourself, I would recommend partnering. Um, there's opportunities to partner with uh, majority serving universities as a uh, co-investigator, co uh, or you can band together, HBCUs together can then apply for uh, NASA grants. So I would say that's the primary way of, of uh, applying. Okay. Any thoughts on the, uh, from you? So I'll offer a little bit of uh, a perspective from the student as well. So obviously we have uh, opportunities through grants and things of that nature, uh, but also fellowships and internships in particular offer um, an opportunity for bridging uh, the gap and, and making connections. And so uh, usually two things I like to point out, we, we think about internships, we think about the benefits that it has for a student. A student gets the opportunity to begin to exercise some of the things that they've learned in the classroom, sharpen their pencil a bit, uh, have exposure to the potential work areas, things that they may want to pursue as they uh, move on to professional careers. Uh, but there's also an indirect benefit, um, and I think we lose sight of it sometimes. Uh, students that are going out to these institutions that are pushing forward our, our uh, space initiatives, if you will, they have an opportunity to see the internal research and development. Um, they, they get an opportunity to see strategic roadmaps at these different institutions. They're able to make note of that and then take that information back to, to the institutions themselves. And so that's important because it can help inform uh, some of the research that's being done on the campuses so that we're ensuring that research aligns with need, right? We have a whole lot of problems, no shortage of those, um, but but key is aligning uh, what we do, our, our research objectives with those specific needs. So, so I, I wanted to make that, that point from the, from the student perspective. Appreciate that, Danny. Um, so, Roy, I got a thought from you too as well. Let me let me chime in. Okay. a little bit more on what Kenny has said. So, one of the things to look at would be um, NASA and various DoD agencies or other uh, government civilian agencies. So, they all have focal areas. Let's let's take hypersonics for example. So, that's a lot of fluid dynamics, thermal dynamics, physics, um, aeronautical engineering. Those types of things that Patrick has, has studied. So schools could pair what are already those, or I should say, um, the school zone focus areas in those particular subjects, identifying how those subjects or how those research areas that are going on at the school could pair up well with what the, the government agencies need. So for example, if there's a fluid dynamics problem, which requires you know, high-powered uh, computing or some sort of advanced uh, simulations, and the school actually already has the capability to do that, identifying what particular need there might be with that government agency and saying, hey, you know, NASA, you've got a challenge doing, you know, fluid velocity, you know, modeling, you know, in, in upper atmosphere, exo atmosphere. Well, we can actually help with that. We've got, you know, a small high performance um, computing uh, lab where we can, you know, start doing some of that. So that that's an area that gives that school a foothold into some of those um, areas with, uh, with, with NASA and DOD agencies. So one of the big things I wanted to, to point out in this question here is that in, in terms of HBCUs engaging with NASA or either um, national security space areas within DOD is that understanding what the requirements are, but more importantly, understanding what you can do. What, is your, what are the resources you have to bear in your institution? And what can you do? So you have to match those up between what your resources are, whether it's in students, grad students, your faculty, in terms of their background, with requirements that are out there in either NASA or DOD. I think that's the number one thing in doing. The other part is, do I have the resources? Do I have the facilities to do the work? If I don't, can I team with somebody else to do the work? It doesn't hurt to team. That's how you get your foot in the door. 
whether it's Tuskegee or whether it's uh, Morgan State. I've worked with Morgan State before in the past. Now, Kenny and I have. We've worked with Morgan State because they're right here locally within, and within the Maryland uh, and uh, D.C. area. So what I'm getting at, it's important to do those things and understand what that value proposition is we talk about and uh, in terms of how does that support both your organization and the sponsor you're trying to get to. So I'm going to have another question because I'm looking for questions to come from the audience here. So I got a lot of questions down here that I'm going to give to my team here. And the next question I have for you is um, how can the HBCUs engage commercial and allies in the support of space activities? Again, how can HBCUs engage com the commercial industry and, and our allies in support of uh, space activities, whether they're either NASA or whether they're uh, in support of um, um, DOD? Um, similar to NASA having uh, grants available to directly for universities for doing research, they also have uh, grants that are available for universities to pair with small businesses. So there's two programs in particular, the SS, STTR, which is the Small Business Technology Transfer Grant, and then there's also the SBIR, which is the Small Business Innovation Research. In that case, uh, the university or, or, or nonprofit organization would then pair with a, a small business, and then they would be uh, able to uh, apply for a grant for NASA to transfer existing technologies into the commercial world. So that's one big way that uh, either a small business and HBCU combine together and, and, and provide a single area of strength to be able to apply for those grants. So that's, that's one way I would definitely encourage folks to, to go down that path. Any other comments on that area? Okay. And I have an, another question here, which I'm going to get, because I'm, and again, this is the, I'm trying to get you guys to just throw out some questions uh, versus looking at me going, hey, John, what do you got in your deck? So I got all kinds of questions here. But I really want you guys to come up with those, some of those questions too as well. But I have another one for you. And that is currently the, the military services, whether it's the Army, the Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard, are all organized and aligned primarily to prosecute war, if you would, in their native domains of, of land, uh, maritime, and air, with space being as a secondary support function. Has their conflict of interest uh, stymied the growth of space professionals? And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to go to, you first, Roy, on this one, because it probably pertains more to the military than anything else. Sure. Uh, please repeat your question one more time. Okay. Basically, I'm saying is, as the current military services, the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard, are all organized and aligned primarily to prosecute a war in their native domains of land, maritime, and air, with space being as a secondary function, has there, has there been a conflict of interest and, and which has been and caused the growth of space professionals not to be able to do the things they needed to, if you would. Yeah. So one of the challenges would be, so it, it becomes a money question, right. right? So if on battlefronts for land, sea, and and, and air, there are ninety percent of the funds, or I should say ninety percent of the funds go that direction, versus for space, you know, it's one fifth of I think the the domain that you had just uh, mentioned. So that already compete or creates some sort of a conflict of interest where you don't have the resources necessary to fight in space or, or to use space as a further development area. Um, secondly, if the funding isn't there, the infrastructure won't be there in terms of either academic growth, meaning investments being made to schools that could help with um, space-based development, corporate growth 
um, wouldn't necessarily be there if those corporations are looking for um, uh, space-based funding or they, um, government agencies that provides um, space-based funding to, to support that. So essentially it becomes a, a resource challenge. So if the focus is not on space, or I should say if space has been significantly diminished um, as a uh, platform, and the, the focus is only on basically the, the Earth-based stuff, you, en you end up with a conflict of interest in that um, there, there simply isn't the focus uh, on, on space. Right. And so I have another question, and this has to do with hypersonics. Um, and, and I'll probably address this one going forward here. And that is, as hypersonics becomes more important as far as a capability for the United States, what are the things that the HBCUs could do to support hypersonics going forward? So I think three areas I think that, that they could support. One is materials. Uh, because, hyper, because these weapons or these assets will go at the Mach speeds above five, Mach five, in some cases up to Mach 13, and some depending upon what it is, it's pretty fast. So as you're re-entering the atmosphere, let's say you're coming from space, um, and uh, you're going to have a situation where there's going to be a lot of heat, so you need to make sure you protect all the avionics and other things that, that, that are supporting the, the hypersonic weapon itself. The other thing is propulsion. Looking at different ways propul to propul uh, uh, propulsion rather <coughs> that could support the activities of hypersonics. So that's materials, propulsion. What's the other one? Radar. Looking at various ways to be able to hide within radar or define either defend it or uh, against it as well. So there are a number of things that the HBCUs can do to support hypersonics going forward. I know there are a lot of hypers that a lot of the universities will say, well, you know, we don't have the capabilities in those areas, but they have materials folks. We don't have capabilities in these areas, but we have propulsion folks. So what I'm getting at is find what you're good at. There are a lot of brilliant folks out there that work that are working in the HBCUs. John, I will uh, just uh, play off what you said. So um, prior to my current job, I was the program manager for the Parker Solar Probe mission. So that was the mission that John mentioned that um, is going the closest that any man-made object has ever gone to the sun. So one of the reasons we can do that is because we have these enabling technologies. One of our primary primary enabling technologies is our heat shield. So when we're getting closer to the sun, we see temperatures up to 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the technology, it took so long to develop that type of technology because we basically had to come up with a way of protecting the spacecraft from those extreme temperatures. So one of the things that does protect the spacecraft is a, um, a optical coating that's on the front side of the shield. So it basically reflects the sun's heat right back at itself. That was developed in the conjunction with Johns Hopkins University. Not, not the applied physics laboratory, but the actual university. So professors doing research with graduate students. That's definitely something an HBCU could have done in a lab. It doesn't require lots of, 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 of extra equipment and that type of stuff. So that's an example of the type of thing that an HBCU could do and would reap the benefits from that kind of research. So, so the whole point here is that being creative is, is important, I think, as part of an HBCU. That's why we do research is to be creative. Um, and that's one way you can do that. So I've asked about all my questions here that I was going to head on my list, unless you would. Okay, go ahead, please. So the, the double EMB can't just let the, uh, <laughs> the, the aerospace engineers and mechanical engineers all talking. Um, there, there are also a lot of opportunities um, from the electronics perspective, okay? So 
Uh, the space industry is, is vast, and I, I like to put it this way, there's just a ton of problems there that are waiting to be solved. Um, so, so each university has research labs that focus, focus on different things. So it could be RF capability that we need to bolster. It could be onboard computing in terms of our single board computers that we fly. We always need more processing power, right? Um, it, it, it could be in, in microwave and ASIC design, if you will. We need we need better and more capable ASICs to do our, our, our conversions on board spacecraft. So, so whatever it may be in terms of um, specific interests in research labs and what, what folks do well, it can be leveraged to, to, to further our, our national space interests. It's just a matter of aligning those skills and those interests uh, with specific need. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned ASICs. And they also throw in their FPGAs <coughs> as well. The point I'm getting across is there is a lot out there that the universities can do collectively but I think the most important thing, which I've seen across the board, especially I've been an APLer, is that we team a lot with um, other universities. We team with other UARCs. Before I go, what is a UARC? Does anyone know what a UARC is, by the way? University Affiliated Research Center. And uh, so APL has 7,000 people. When I first got there back in 15 years ago, we had 3,200 people. And now we're up to 7,000. It is a large, you can take all the UARCs together and they're still not as big as APL. Um, or at Johns Hopkins, the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. And we're involved in so many different areas now from what we were even back in, you know, uh, 2005, 2004. So things have changed dramatically. A lot of it has to do with, of course, we are involved in, in, in engagements in the Middle East and things such as that. And that was one reason. The other reason, because of special ops, their requirements were so huge and brought in new capabilities and technologies. Um, and anything, Homeland Security, IARPA. So we're engaged in all those areas, whether it's the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, I, I think every single organization that's in the Washington DC area and beyond, we're involved. I'm saying APL is involved and so can HBCUs, they can do it as well. But you've got to start out small. You got to get you got to get that grant. You got to team with folks. I would hope that hopefully after this, someone would come up to one of the our three member panelists and say, "Hey, I've got an idea here. What do you think about this? Maybe we can do that with you too as well." Those are the things that we'd like to be able to do. The other part of it is that you don't even have to have a clearance to do some of the work. We talked about clearances before; they help, but it doesn't mean you, you 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 won't get any DoD work. There's certain DOD work you need to have a clearance with. I'll, I'll be honest with you. And we had talked about a clearance, whether it's a secret or whether it's a TS or a TSSCI or beyond. And, and there is work that goes beyond that in the space world. You know, you've got, that opens up other doors. We call them green doors. And behind those green doors, there's other work. And behind that work, there's even more work. But you have to get in the first door. I think Victor McQuarrie was talking about that at our luncheon today. That you got to start at some level to get in, whether it's a grant or whatever the case may be. And then you have to perform well. Just because you get the work doesn't mean that you're going to get more work. Perform good at the work that you currently have on your plate. I remember, I remember when I was a kid, my mother used to say, eat what you have on your plate. I was whining at the plate. So sometimes I got the same meal the next meal. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is make sure you eat what you have on your plate, do it well, so that you can uh, digest that one and then move to the next one and the next one. 
Next thing you know, you're, you're having a lot of work coming in and, uh, and you go from there. What's unique about APL is that one of the things that we're doing is we do hire from the HBCUs. We have two of our, uh, our panelists up here that are from the HBCUs. They didn't come to APL initially. Some of them went to other organizations you know, like Boeing and other uh, companies. Kinney came directly from, um, from the HBCUs in Morgan State. And I came out of the Air Force. I did not come directly to APL. I came out of the Air Force and I went to basically the National Nuclear Security Administration, DOE. Then I came over. You know, Roy came out of, uh, um, I think, Boeing, is that correct? And uh, some other, and other companies as well. So, I mean, we've all come out of commercial industry at one time or another. So it starts. And then all of a sudden you end up at APL. But the, ra the rationale behind that is to say it can, it can, be, it can be done. So now I'm gonna turn this over to you guys because I really wanna get some of those questions from the floor here. And so please, yes, I'll start out real quick and I'll, and I'll hand it off. I was a little lucky because my mother was a professor at HBCU at Wilberforce when I was in Ohio. So I didn't have any choice. You know, reading books in the summertime was something I had to do. Doing math in the summertime was something I had to do. She didn't see, she didn't see a football player in me. I think what she saw was somebody who could be an engineer or maybe someone who could be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Um, so, but I think it has to start early. It has to start at home. And when I, when we said first grade or in elementary school, I think that's where it starts. You have to be excited about it. And of course, when I came up, I was excited about we landed on the moon. That was cool. I mean, everybody was focused on that television. We landed on the moon. And that was a big deal. All the Apollo missions leading up to that were uh, was just something that was nice to see. Mercury and all the other things. Uh, so I grew up, was a 60s kid, and I grew up in that time frame. And so for me, it was engineering was something I wanted to do. So I think that at that time, it was a time that that was something that was different, you know, and getting excited about it. The space shuttle, getting excited about the space shuttle, landing on the moon, that was exciting. Just seeing that. Anybody who was anybody as a kid back then said, that was neat. I didn't care if you were white, black, female, male, didn't matter. It was just cool stuff. And somehow you wanted to be part of that. You're listening to the U.S. Space Force and Hypersonics, a role for HBCUs, a professional development seminar featuring John Hicks, Patrick Hill, Kenny Newsom, and Roy Nicholson. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The other part was what curricula? Curriculum that way, I think that should be done in school. I think a lot of this is the basics. When I say, for example, I'm an engineer, I'm, I'm an aerospace engineer. So if I see something in electrical engineering or mechanical engineering, I understand it. I don't go, oh, I don't, I don't get that. I go, I get it. And so when I look at, I'm gonna look at basic engineering things. Well, you have to have math and science, obviously. Um, calculus when you're in high school. And I think if you wanna do well in college, in my opinion, you need to have calculus in high school. You know, kids that are doing geometry and, and, uh, and uh, algebra two and three, need to have that done early on in school. But when you get to college, you shouldn't have to be taking algebra when you're in college. Somehow you've missed the boat. 
if you can't have the fundamentals of reading and you're all of a sudden you're in school and you, you can't read fast and pick up and comprehend, there's a problem. So being an engineer, I know I can actually go to each and every one of us. We have a lot of common threads between us. Reading very well. Math and a, a hardcore science background. You know, those were important. You know, so if you were to ask me what I took at school, thermodynamics, you know, fluids. I mean, I took a lot of courses like that. There were just common courses between, no matter what engineering you are, you have the common courses. You know, so those are some of the courses that I would think you need to do, but I'm gonna hand this off to Patrick and let everyone else kind of answer the same questions. So similar, similar background, um, I actually grew up in uh, inner city Chicago. My mother was a, an educator, first a teacher, later a principal. So needless to say, I didn't get away with anything with my teachers because she knew all my teachers personally. So, um, but part of my exposure to both science and technology was she worked part time at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. So very often that was my babysitter. I spent endless hours in the museum. That's how I learned about the Tuskegee Airmen. That's how I learned about aerospace engineering. So at, at sixth grade, I already knew I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. I, I pretty much had determined that. Uh, when the shuttle launched on my birthday on April 12th, I was like, okay, that's it. That's definitely the field I want to go in. So I've, I've just pursued that doggedly through um, high school. I went to a, a magnet school in Chicago, Lane Tech on the north side. Uh, then to Tuskegee, where I majored in aerospace engineering, and then to Stanford, where I did also did aerospace engineering. So I've always been primarily focused on that, and that's what I just followed that dream. But as John said, there's certain key things you have to be strong in math. Math is the language of learning, and it, it follows you through everything. Um, it actually helps that you're very good at reading. And so I, I took AP English, and once some, what you'll find out is once you get into industry, the ability to communicate is extremely important. So we have lots of engineers who are very good at the math piece, but they can't communicate. And so very often we leave them as analysts. They're not the ones out there in front briefing the sponsor, that type of thing, because they don't have the communication skills. So it helps to be able to communicate well. And then also physics. Physics you'll find is no matter what branch or field of engineering you're in, it basically comes down to, to physics. And so I would say those are important things. I, I did aerospace engineering, so I did have exposure to propulsion and orbital mechanics and those type of things at, at, un, as an undergrad, but you don't, you can pick those up in grad school. It's really the core engineering courses that, that matter and it will lead to some level of success. So. Kenny? Sure. So um, I'll offer a little bit different perspective. Um, I would say I kind of fell into aerospace work a little bit later in life. So um, growing up as a, as a kid, I always had an affinity for mathematics. Uh, that was something that always came came natural. And out of all, this, uh, all, all of my academics, that was the only one that I could stand very much. Uh, now, I, I excelled at everything, but I said, you know what, this is the one that I like, and I'm, I know I'm going to move into that field. So as I matriculated, I actually uh, moved into the comp sci area. So I did a lot of computer science and, in high school. And then uh, when I went on to college, I said, hey, I want to move into electrical engineering. Um, I actually interned for a number of years with Hewlett Packard. Uh, so, I, so I actually worked on ASIC teams for single function color printers for, for a while. And then I had an opportunity to come over to APL and was exposed to aerospace work. And after that, it was over. Uh, I found an area, I found a passion, and I said, this is, this is what I want to do. So, so me, I didn't know at an early age, I knew I was going to be an engineer. I knew I was going to do something in the electrical field. And that's what I, that, that was the trajectory that I started on. But I, I fell in love with aerospace work. Uh, while I was in undergraduate school. Um, and I, I, I also want to 
say one other thing. I, I think it's very important that we reach the students at an early age. So we all have a responsibility to, to participate in STEM outreach and, and, and those things that are happening at, at your kid's school, you know, going in and judging uh, uh, fairs and, and giving talks about what you do so you can allow the students to know the realm of what's possible. But, but it's not just that, right? We, we also have some students, the bottom line, some students are not going to know and they're not going to have exposure. So at each level, we have to make an effort to, to provide that exposure. So even at the collegiate level. And uh, one thing I can speak to is myself and several colleagues started a grassroots mentoring program uh, between APL and Morgan State University about 10 years ago, with that being the focus to um, uh, provide uh, just, a, just a vision or a view into uh, some of the things that uh, folks are doing, right? Just so even at the collegiate level, students that may not have, uh, I'll say, as deep of exposure or opportunity to see things can kind of see, hey, that, that is a path that I can take. And I can see the endpoints, and this person has talked through how, how to traverse those, those endpoints. Uh, so, so I think it's all important, but I didn't want to lose sight of uh, even uh, making connections with uh, those that are, you know, matriculated a little bit further in academics. Well, I agree with you, yeah. I'm glad you made that, that point, and that is, how do you get those students who their parents don't know? So I'm out in L.A., and there's a young lady um, uh, whose last name is Basteca. Uh, her parents were, are Hispanic, Mexican. Been in this for the, so she's the first generation. Her parents didn't know how to school her in terms of what courses she should take. So I've been mentoring her. I told her, these are the courses you need to take if you want to become an intern with APL. And so she's going to be an interning this summer. She's going to work directly for me. And I'm going to tell her, here are the things you need to do for this summer to be successful. So maybe then you can come back here the next summer to be here in Laurel, Maryland. So it takes someone to say, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to help you out and move you forward. And again, the, 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 and I talk about this, and it's L.A. It's different than it is back here. If you talk about L.A. and talk about California, it's 5.4% that are black in all of California. And then you have 14.7%, I remember the numbers, that are Asian, 59% white, and then the other part is Hispanic. And so a lot of these kids, not all, but, but some, uh, my thoughts were, why don't we reach out and use the STEM and find students? Rather than just taking all the same students all the time, let's take, we're gonna take them out of Stanford, we're gonna take them over over here, we're gonna take them out of MIT. How come we don't go over these other schools and find kids who have potential, and that's the word, find students who have potential, believe in them so they believe in themselves, give them a job, give them an opportunity, and watch them flourish. That's kind of what we're doing. Now, no one asked me to do that. I don't get any awards for that. I'm not, it's not what it's for. Because I think if we do that, we help our nation. And that's important. Yeah. In terms of commercial proliferation, Yeah, the main challenge. Go ahead. So that's a really good question. Um, so there's a lot of digital imaging taking place right now in terms of mapping uh, mapping the globe. So um, I think it's <coughs> Planet Labs that does like a lot of uh, small CubeSat stuff. 
So um, I think a couple of years ago, they had launched like 50 satellites at once. You know, these are small CubeSat variety. Um, so right now, like that would be an excellent opportunity for investment, or I should say for a, if a person wants to go that direction where they don't need to have a security clearance. And, and what that provides is um, an extensive amount of opportunity for developing, in this case, satellites, but also ground systems and other I'll say support infrastructure on, on the engineering side that could be used for the commercial sector that um, still applies on the, on the defense sector, but it's just pure commercial. So, for example, um, I think it's Starlink, the, the SpaceX um, uh, adventure or adventure in terms of putting the Internet um, all over the world based on satellites. So I think there are about 3000 satellites yeah, that are planned orbit, yeah, in, in, in uh, Leo orbit, low Earth orbit. So that's all commercial. Ultimately, the end of the game, the, the, the focus there is to make money, right? It's not just free, but it's, but it's to make money. But that kind of gives a sense of how big is the environment to play in on the commercial side versus the, the DOD side. Things are exploding in space in a good way in terms of opportunities on the commercial side. So does that help answer your question? And I, would, I also would chime in there. You've seen on the launch vehicle side, obviously, you see companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin. Um, basically, all of these companies I've, I've been working down at Kennedy for many years, launching uh, spacecraft. And it just to see the the, the evolution of, of primarily all government-owned facilities to these private companies having um, basically renting out areas within Kennedy Space Center for them to develop their own launch vehicles. And we're starting to see some of the benefits of that in terms of the, the cost to launch uh, spacecraft into um, either geo or beyond geo really coming down in cost. And so whereas before we would go only to the government to get these launch vehicles to launch our spacecraft, um, we have a, a spacecraft called DART, which will actually be used to impact an asteroid and redirect an asteroid that's going to launch on a, a Falcon 9. So those are now actual avenues that we can consider that will help bring down costs and still be able to achieve uh, NASA's mission. So it's, that was completely a commercial route. Even though folks don't realize NASA provides the seed money for these organizations. So it's not as if they're just investing their money. Um, government money is being used for them to develop these technologies because the government knows they will then benefit from cheaper launch opportunities. So, so uh, does anyone else have a question? Yeah, I can't speak on the cleanup part of, of space debris, but what I can say is, um, I can't start, I don't remember exactly when this happened, but all of our missions that we now launch going forward, we have to have a plan for deorbiting all of the material that we put up there. So uh, the Van Allen probes mission, um, which launched, I forgot when they launched, 2012, um, we just decommissioned those, even though we still, had, we still have fuel on board that would have allowed them to continue their mission. We use the last of the fuel to put them in a position so they will eventually fall back to Earth, just so we don't leave them up there as space debris. So that uh, all, all of the missions on the NASA civil space side, you have to have a plan for making sure you do not leave debris into space. So I'm not sure how you guys handle it on the military side. But, uh, Go ahead, Roger. That, that, that's a really good question. Um, tracking debris is definitely a really big deal. Um, and there are a number of or organizations um, across the, the, the U.S. government that actually track debris. Trying to capture debris is probably a bit more exotic. Um, I've I think things about nets and all kinds. I haven't seen yeah, any, but I've heard <laughs> proposed ways of, of doing it. But yeah, no, no, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of exotic proposed, kind of literally far out there, uh, kind of stuff. But it really depends on 
you know, how imminent of a threat of a need is it? So I think most of you may be aware that about, was it a week and a half or two weeks ago, there was the near collision Between of the two, two satellites yeah. right above Penn State University, I think, <laughs> right? So um, that actually presents an opportunity for modeling, right? So, so schools that have excellent orbital mechanics uh, modeling and, and capability would be able to do some orbital perturbations um, to make some um, initial estimates. I mean, of course, there are many, many organizations that can do that. But again, that gives one more opportunity to say, unprovoked, um, we, you know, XYZ, HBC uni University, we have the capability to do this. You know, you run a model in SDK, satellite toolkit, um, showing what those are, orbital perturbations are, and then you present that to, you know, the, the, the powers that be, whichever organization it is that needs it. Again, that's one more footstep in the door. I should say it's a foot closer towards the door of being able to say, here is a capability that we have, maybe at a basic level or even at some intermediate level. Right. So I would say that um, debris is a big problem. Um, it's been a problem primarily, just, not just for commercial industry, but for DOD as well, because we have high-valued high assets, which are um, in jeopardy because of, of, of debris. So I know there have been folks that have talked about, I don't take this as a joke, of garbage trucks in, the, in, in space, you know, that would pick up debris and move it. Or maybe it goes to a certain area. I just think that it's... There's no easy way to manage debris, uh, and whomever can come up with the, the thought processes and the way to do that, whether using robots uh, to be able to move debris around to certain areas uh, and help it fall down to, into the atmosphere to burn up, uh, would be surely appreciated by DOD and other in commercial industry. And the other thing is, that if we ever do get into an engagement in space, there's going to be debris everywhere. And so that would put commercial industry and everyone else in jeopardy, as well as our allies and, and adversaries as well, because everyone needs space now, not just the, the U.S. So there's, I think that there would be at least folks trying to prevent debris, but that's not always the case. There are people, and Roy is right, there are agencies, the Air Force and other agencies that track debris. I think that you have to be careful and say what size you're tracking, and everything else because you don't want to give away a capability. So, yes, there are people that track it, but they're not, they're not saying, they just want to know where it's at relative to where their assets are at. So if they have to maneuver, they, they can do that. You can't maneuver debris, but you can maneuver around it if you had to. So the point I'm getting here is that if someone comes up with an idea on how to get rid of debris or to prevent it, that would be great. But I don't think that's going to be done anytime in the near term. I think debris will always be a problem. We'll have to manage where it's at, how to prevent from getting hit by it, and go from there. And hopefully that at some point in time, people abide by the rules like NASA, the, the rules that NASA has and everything else, where satellites will come down over after whatever five years or 25 years, whatever the case is, 25 years, and that it falls to the earth. But not everything is done that way. You know, you can't control what India does. You can't control what the Russians do. You can't control what the Chinese do. And by the way, those are adversaries, not the Indians, but the, the Russians and the Chinese. And I can say that because they are. And so their thought process may be totally different from ours in terms of uh, how they deal with debris. And maybe they might look at debris as a good thing for them. You know, so anyway, throw that out. I'll chime in, just, just one other tidbit there. Um, it, it definitely is all of our problem. Uh, as we're talking, I'm reminded of uh, back on Van Allen probes. 
Uh, we did have uh, several instances where we had uh, a quote unquote scare, where we had to be on guard, where we thought we were going to need to do what we call a COLA maneuver, a collision avoidance maneuver because of, uh, because of debris. So, so it, it's definitely a problem that, uh, it, that belongs to a, a multitude of people and it behooves uh, NASA as an organization um, to, to adhere to our, our standards in terms of decommissioning um, because we don't want to deal with you know, anything errant. <laughs> That was a good question, though, but I'll just leave it at that. There's, there's a lot to do with debris. DOD is trying to work that and manage that. I think they're always trying to manage it down to whatever how small an item is or an asset is, and sometimes it can be so small you may not be able to track it. Uh, so, and then when you do get hit, it's maybe a surprise. The debris problem is similar to the landmine problem uh, as a result of all the wars in the Middle East and an extensive number of, you know, like millions of landmines have been planted. Well, there's no documentation that says there's the landmine here and here and here, right? Granted, tracking debris is a little bit more deterministic, um, but how do you avoid the landmines, right? The U.S. sends 100,000 soldiers over to the Middle East for, for a fight. Well, there's no map that says all the landmines are right here, right? It's so. Uh, there, there's some other estimates that are done in terms of making a determination of where land, landmines are, but it's that same type of problem, right? And what John had just mentioned, how do you avoid the collision? Even if it's only the one in 10,000 chance of happening, but if it happens, it's catastrophic. And the question is, how do you then avoid that? Right? So, so it, it's a very big research topic. There's now conferences on space debris. There's one that just happened in Orlando, I think. And there are some good books out there. We had uh, one guy's an author from APL, actually, who wrote a book on uh, debris. So, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. That was a good question. Any other questions? Yes. Any other questions? We want to take that, Patrick? Let me process that. <laughs> okay. Um, obviously, there's certain benefits, like I mentioned, uh, the, the partnering grants that HBCUs can do with, with businesses um, is definitely a path um, for engaging with HBCUs, but um, obviously APL, I'm trying to think of an APL as an example, we wouldn't qualify as a, as a small business. So um, I definitely think there's advantages for certain businesses. I can't speak for all commercial companies like North Dakota, but just to make sure that they increase their diversity to bring in folks with new ideas and different ideas, there's always that incentive to do that. So we definitely have uh, programs that at APL, where we reach out to HBCUs, we send folks like myself, alumni, to recruit at HBCUs, and also to be engaged. Like the APL actually supports my efforts to support these um, advisory boards. I sit on the advisory board for both Tuskegee University and the University of uh, DC. They sponsor my time and my travel to, to be engaged with these universities because they realize there's opportunities both to bring in uh, really good students, but then also business opportunities. So. In that sense, we do, we do, um, there is that mandate to engage with HBCUs. I can't speak for commercial companies like Orbital or I worked for Orbital Science before that and then Boeing. They do attend career fairs for both uh, Tuskegee and also University of DC because once again, it's an opportunity for them to recruit really good students. So in that sense, yes, I could say yes. I don't know if anyone else has a different so a question for you, Patrick, maybe this for you and John, um, and this is to answer uh, your question. Um, I think there are incentives for partnering with small businesses. Right. Requirements and NASA contracts, actually, yes. For right. small and minority businesses, yes. And, and do those contracts have dollar 
ceilings or, or it's or usually limits. a percentage. It is. Now I'm, I'm not sure what that percentage is. The percentage is under. Okay. Yep. I'm just curious. Like that might be one thing where, if, let's say Northrop is applying for a given contract and it's 100 million, but one of the stipulations might be that X percentage shall go to a small business. Maybe it's seven million or something like that to, to help develop that. So, and that meaning in order for Northrop to win that contract, they have to have partnered with or identified another small business uh, as, as a, a contractor yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not aware of anything similar to that for say HBCUs. And I think that's kind of where you were getting well, at. That actually is an interesting idea. So if you take a look at all the UARCs, which we're a part of, University Affiliate Research Center, you can go online right now and you can capture every single UARC in this country and it'll say, what are their capabilities? It'll highlight that online for you. If I think by mandating something that's saying you have to go to UARC, I'm not saying that's your question, would be very difficult. But the same thing with HBCU, I think it would be kind of very difficult to say we're gonna mandate you to go to HBCUs for this, this, and this, and this. But I think it would be helpful if where there was something that went online, you said, here are all the research opportunities that HBCUs are looking for, or their capabilities, here's what they have, just like we do with UARCs, it might be easier than for someone who's in DOD to say, you know, I'm gonna look at a UARC, I mean, a HBCU today, and oh, they have this, this is, let's go down there and check, let's find out how, how, uh, how deep in the research area that they have with, let's say, hypersonics or materials or even with uh, model-based system engineering or software development and things such as that. I mean, there's all kinds of things we can ask. But I think without that listing and understanding what the competencies are of each one of the schools where HBCUs, it's kind of hard to say, can I, should I give a contract to this school or this school or this school that's an HBCU? I mean, that's what I would want to know is, I would want to know basically here are all the areas of research each school has in their interest. That way you know the depth of that school and whether or not they can actually do the work. And before I would even, even take a look at mandating, uh, I would wanna know that question up front. And then, then you would say, okay, all the HBCUs, we need schools that are good in this. Here are the highlighted areas that we need work in. Software development, model-based system engineering, um, and I keep going down, AI, and, and other uh, opportunities, propulsion. And then I know Tuskegee does propulsion, and a few other schools, we talked about that earlier. So, but what I'm getting at is if you can then delineate all those competencies, line them up and say, here's what you have, then you know where to go. The UARCs are that way currently right now. So you can go to University of Texas as a UARC, University of Hawaii is a UARC, University of Pennsylvania is a UARC, APL is a UARC, I mean, Johns Hopkins is a UARC, and there are a number of other UARCs around the country. So, but, and they line it out there and you can see, oh, that's what DOD does, you know? And then once you become good at something, they continue to come back to you anyway, regardless if you're good at it or not. They just assume that you are. And that's what happens with APL. That's how we grew from 3,200 people to 7,000. Uh, we have it now, we're doing it. You want us to look at this? Well, we'll do it, because we have people that can think. Remember what I said earlier? An engineer to me is an engineer is an engineer. We want people that can think outside the box. So if someone is not a hypersonics guy, but I can think in that area, I can do research in that area, that's important. And a lot of folks go, how many folks went to college? And then when you came out, you said, I was gonna be this, but you came out and did something totally different than what you studied. Most of us do. Because when we go to college, college teaches us how to think. You know, that's what college is about. It's about learning to think. 
in a different way, outside the box. So you can do other things outside of what you, you, you learned. Because you're not afraid to do that. At least that's what I think college is about. I have a comment. Um, first of all, like I said, I really enjoyed listening. Um, I've been working for NASA for this year, about 36 years from now. I started out as a design engineer and a uh, system engineer, worked my way up to now chief engineer. I've been a chief engineer for Space Station for about five years in the avionics area. And now I'm one of the chief engineers, the avionics power software chief engineer for Hawaii. So, you first started out by saying, uh, you know, what are some of the things that HBC has been doing uh, as far as uh, contributing to NASA for space? And uh, I can tell you right now that uh, you hit the nail on the head in regards to materials because that right now uh, we're troubleshooting uh, electronics that have problems for operating in deep space. Mm -hmm. So Orion is supposed to take astronauts to the moon, to the vicinity of the moon, and we're going to build um, another space station around the moon called Gateway. So uh, one of the things that we don't think about is that we have lots of electronics that work fine here on the Earth, but in deep space we have charged particles, yeah. we have uh, micrometeorites that uh, in space debris. We have a lot of things that um, that just causes the electrons to go haywire. And people say, well, wait a minute, we did it in Apollo days. They say, well, wait a minute, your cell phone has more processing power than what the crew had back in the Apollo days back in the early 60s and 70s. So, you know, they were just sticking rudder guys. But anyway, one of the things that, uh, that we really need to concentrate on is what kinds of materials that we can use to help allow the electronics and everything to operate in deep space, because we're talking about operating around the moon, and we're working on trying to put the first woman on the moon uh, in 2024. So uh, again, it's just a comment that uh, I think that uh, it is imperative that we uh, not only inspire uh, young students to, to study hard, but Tell them this is the problem that we have. Right. Give them something that they can shoot for. Uh, you know, I when I was working on uh, a space station um, as a chief engineer, I sat on the panel for payloads. And at any given time, we're looking at over 700 projects, science projects that will go on space station. And so inside of me, I, I'm just burning up inside, sending emails back to my my college, uh, Tennessee State University, saying, hey, look, here's an opportunity. I can tell you how to get your science experiment on space station if you're interested. And, you know, sometimes you think, oh, great. But, you know, it's like, okay, here I am. Right. Um, I think that um, it takes uh, you, you guys, you're phenomenal. So I think it takes you guys just getting out there, getting the word out there. I appreciate the comment and thank you very much. I know that we've actually we actually went to work on this uh, this panel right here, met numerous times. We have two of us are out in LA and the other two are back here on Laurel. So you know that uh, three hour difference difference in trying to talk to each other in terms of what we're gonna say here and, and even this morning getting together to do it. So um, I have one more yeah. When you first started out saying that you flew F-15 uh, jet planes, uh, that was my dream. In fact, I got my mother sitting right here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, my my desire uh, was 
over in uh, Colorado, right. Colorado Springs. And, uh, you know, that through life, uh, you know, fun, things change. But believe it or not, uh, at Tennessee State University, they didn't have aerospace engineering. Right. They had aerospace technology. And I also had a desire to go to NASA. So anyway, when you said that, I said, oh, it's, it's important to find out the dreams and goals of the community. It starts when you're young. It starts at a very, very early age. And, and you put booster rockets on it and said, you can do it. That's right. No, I appreciate that comment. You're absolutely right. It does start when you're young. I've always said if you start, it's never too late, I'll say that. But you have to start when they're young. That's imperative. Anyway, any more questions? I think that we're being, someone's trying to kick me out on here. Let's go with one more question here in the back. Uh, you guys have talked a lot about students um, going to school. Uh, I have a question for a student returning to school. Do you have a recommendation for degrees? Um, obviously, it's going to be the STEM fields, but talk a lot about physics being important in all engineering. Do you recommend a student uh, majoring in physics? Or if they are going to be majoring in engineering, there's so many types. You know, maybe someone can be, be overwhelmed with all the different ones. Is there a way your student could look to a specific one that would give them the most opportunities? I'm going to start out with Roy in the end, and we'll come and I'll do the last one. Go ahead, Roy. So I'm the physics guy that kind of morphed <laughs> into double E in aeronautical. So um, my background is physics, uh, but it was a double E focused uh, math background as well. Um, I'm working on my master's now, which is more aerospace based. So at the end of the day, really any of them work, to be honest. Um, I mean, if, if you specifically want to go into aeronautical engineering, you know, stick with the hardcore stuff, which includes chemistry as well. So physics or chemistry, double E, CS, I mean, any of those, your, your path is, is pretty much clear. So you then just figure out what specific thing do I like, you know, tweaking with so much and gadgeting with that, you know, will carry me for, for a career. So, but yeah, it's open. Right. So, I mean, uh, Kenny, sorry um, about that. So you're going to get uh, probably at least three different answers, but <laughs> I'm just going to give you that. So I'm biased. Uh, my background is electrical engineering. I did my master's degree in systems engineering. Um, so I'll, I'll offer this. I, I agree with everything that Roy said. Um, I'll say from an electrical perspective, the, the things are very, very broad. So you, you can effectively do almost any job outside of structural analysis on, on a spacecraft with a double, double E degree because you've proven that you can think and you can apply uh, those thought processes in, in, in multiple areas. So I, I would say um, maybe that's not so helpful, but also it allows you to think about what's, what drives you the most. What, what's the thing that just kind of piques your interest when you wake up, right? If you know it's how electrons flow through a circuit, then great, go in that direction. If it's saying that, hey, this thing, I want to know how, how this, this table handles this load that we have up here or something to that effect, then that's the, that's the, the way you need to go. That's not something that interests me, so. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> go, go with whatever your gut is, um, but you, you really can't can't go wrong. Yeah, I will uh, actually agree with you, surprisingly. <laughs> so, I, but I would say this way: follow your passion. Uh, I talked about I've always wanted to be an aerospace engineer. So, my background is structural analysis. <clears throat> Guess what? The very same techniques I use to analyze a uh, launch vehicle, the very same thing a civil engineer uses to do a bridge, to analyze a bridge. I would fall asleep analyzing a bridge because I'm not interested in bridges. So it has to be something that you're passionate about. So I would say engage with folks who are in different fields that you're considering, get an understanding what their day-to-day -day life is like, work life is like. And then if you see something that piques your interest, 
follow along, get more information. And that's why I would say follow your passion because when, when times get tough and we all have times where it's work is difficult, you're working late hours, all those things, it's that passion that makes you want to wake up in the morning and come in and do a great job. So that's what I would say. So I'm going to give it kind of a different twist. I looked at things in terms of sports. I couldn't play football, as I think I mentioned earlier, because I was too small. I couldn't play, definitely couldn't play basketball because I wasn't tall enough. I swam a little bit, but I wasn't all that good. But I played lacrosse, and I was really good at that, really great at that. And, uh, but there are no lacrosse professional teams out there that would, you know, obviously back in the day. So I kind of relate that back to engineering. What I mean by that is, is that I wasn't good at physics, but I kind of liked it. I wasn't good at, uh, um, oh, let's say thermodynamics and fluids. I just didn't do well on that, but I was really good at math. And so I applied that to aerospace engineering. And the reason why is because it had a link between when I was in the plane, I had to have a lot of math in terms of what was my landing speed? What was this? What was my descent rate? And I could do things really quick. And that saved my life many a time. So I did things. I wanted to do something that would, one, save my life. Aerospace engineering did. So that's why it became good. I was good at math. So it all kind of tied together. So I'm getting at you got to find the thing that helps you as an individual so you can become that person that you want to be and eventually do the things that are exciting for you. I didn't, I didn't want to do things that were exciting for the guy next door or the, my mother down there or, my, or for my dad. What was exciting for me? Because guess what? I've got to live with me going forward for the next, hopefully, 90 years by the time I, I finally kick off and I'm still working at APL. I'm hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I'm on, on the beach someplace. But in all honesty, I think that you've got to do things that are exciting to you. If you don't like it, don't do it. You've got to enjoy it. And money is not enough. And if you do, Something that's right. If you do it for money, you're never going to like it. You've got to have a passion for it. I go back to, there's a guy who just passed away, Kobe, Kobe um, and how many folks know Kobe? Remember Kobe, the basketball player? He had a passion for basketball. He would have said that he would go to the gym and practice and practice. Well, that's what I did. You know, I, was, I went and I went back to my, my room in college and I studied and I studied because I wanted to do really well at that. That's what I want. I wasn't out partying. I guess I could have been, but I didn't because I kind of figured there would be time for that at some point in time in the future, you know? So you gotta, if you have a passion for something, you'll do it because you love it. And that's what you gotta do. Find the thing that you have a passion for and do it, and you'll do well at it. Whether it's, uh, and then don't do it for money. Do it because you like it. You enjoy it, you have a love for it. That's what I'll tell you. That's why I like to lacrosse, and that's why I like flying, and that's why I like the job I have now. I have a passion for it. I think, I think we're out of time. <laughs> But thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the U.S. Space Force and Hypersonics, the role for HBCUs, a professional development seminar featuring Johns Hopkins University Applied Research Laboratory representatives, program area manager John Hicks, Program Manager, Space Exploration Sector, Patrick Hill. Electrical Systems Engineer, Kenny Newsom, And Project Manager, Roy Nicholson. If you've enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference.
For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.bea.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.